text this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Tim preached last week on Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And this is the passage that follows directly after it. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Years ago, the Queen of England was on a train, and she was traveling overnight from Edinburgh to London. And it was a foggy night, as it always is, or often is, in the British Isles, and uh, the visibility was poor, and the conductor of the train looked up ahead as he uh, drove it, and he noticed something in the darkness and in the fog that startled him. Standing on the tracks, there was a man in a long black coat, and he was waving his arms. So the conductor immediately pulled on the brake with all of his might, and everyone on the train was dislodged from their bunks, including the queen. And within a matter of about 300 yards, they stopped the train, and people began to get off the train, especially the crew, and they began to search the track for the stranger. They couldn't find him. Even the conductor was off of the train, and he was looking, and he couldn't find the stranger either. So he began to walk up the tracks, and he got about 200 yards from the, from the engine. And through the fog and the darkness, he noticed that a part of the train tracks had been washed away. So he called for the crew. They began to repair the tracks, and the conductor continued to look for the stranger, and he couldn't find him. After the tracks were repaired, the train continued its journey all the way to London. The queen got off of the train with her entourage. Everyone went to their homes except the conductor. He couldn't understand who was that stranger that stopped them in the nick of time. And so he began to inspect the, the engine. And you may remember those old engines with one singular light, and he looked on this light, and there on that light bulb was, was a huge moth. So he carefully peeled the moth from the light. He took it and he put it in some water and then he pasted it back on the light and went inside the train and he turned on the light and suddenly he knew the answer. It wasn't a man at all. It was a moth. A moth had stopped the train. And so he went to the queen, and he said to Queen Victoria, it was a moth. It was no stranger. It was simply a moth. And Queen Victoria said, surely it is no accident. 
my God controls the flight of moths. You say that's crazy. Anybody who has a light outside in the summertime knows that light attracts moths. Light is the thing that determines their pathway at night. You know, that's exactly what the conductors thought until he stopped the train and saw the tracks out. What's God used in your life lately to get your attention? What's he done in your life to stop you dead in your tracks? Last week, if you were here, you know we studied the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it's interesting, that story is in all four Gospels. We were looking at it in Luke. But the very next scene, Jesus going into the temple area, Luke doesn't include. Matthew does, Mark does, so does John, but Luke leaves it out. And this morning we want to study what Matthew tells us about it, but before we do, I want to call your attention to what John does with this story. He takes this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, and he moves it forward in his gospel to the second chapter. It's still Passover, but it's not the last Passover Jesus will experience in his ministry. Actually, it's the first of the three. And the reason he moves it up is very plain when you look at the structure of his gospel. In chapter 1, John shows us the blindness of the priesthood. Beginning chapter 2, he shows us that Israel has run out of spiritual life. They're out of wine, which symbolizes joy in life. And then at the the end of chapter 2, he shows us that their worship has become empty. Blindness, spiritual death, and empty worship. And isn't it interesting, he shows us, John does, the same thing that Matthew and Mark do. That when their worship is profiled and it's empty, it is at Passover time. It's at their high, holy time of the year. Now, you may remember that at Passover, there was one particular central obligation that everyone, every Jew, had to maintain. At Passover time, every Jew was required to cleanse their house. And what needed to be removed from their house was any leaven. Leaven was a symbol of defilement. It was a symbol of sin, and they were required to remove it. For it was called from Exodus chapter 12, the Passover of the Lord. But isn't it interesting? When John tells us about Jesus cleansing the temple at Passover time, he doesn't call it the Passover of the Lord. He calls it the Passover of the Jews. You see, they've made it all about them. They've made their worship all about their own interests. And isn't that what we religious people tend to do all the time? King Jesus has entered the city of God, and he goes to the dwelling place of God, and there, instead of finding loving worship, 
he finds the leaven of self-interest. And Paul knows about this because he writes about it in a tremendous text. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's take a look at it. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I think Paul's thinking about this act of Jesus on his final Passover after he comes into the city of God as the king of that city. Paul's point's the same as Jesus is making. When it comes to worship, it's not about our tastes. It's not about our pleasures. It's about him. It's about laying ourselves and our interests at his feet. Last week, Tim cited a hymn that says this in the first line, King of my life, crown, I crown thee now. King of my life, I crown thee now. Now, I was thinking about it this week. Why is that a hymn? Because it's something we need to remember every day. King of my life, I crown thee now. Now when? Right now. Every time I sing it. Every time I'm led to sing it. You say, what does it mean to crown him? Well, to crown him means the opposite of what Jesus sees in this temple. It's the opposite of going through the motions. And so let's dig into the text. First of all, notice the claim. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons or doves. Now, you may remember how the temple is designed. Not only is there the building, but there are the, there's an outer court. And this outer court is said to be 14 acres in size. For you football fans, that's 10 football fields with end zones. That's a big place. And in this 14 acres, there are men who sell animals for sacrifices, and there are men who exchange money. Because the requirement of the Jewish law was that a tax of a half a shekel had to be paid into the treasury of the temple. And that tax had to be paid in temple currency. You couldn't use any foreign coinage. So there were people who exchanged money. So what does Jesus do when he walks into the outer court? Does he exchange money? Does he buy a sacrificial animal? Not at this time. This time he claims this temple for himself and for his father. During the Revolutionary War, Ethan Allen was said to take a small band of patriots into, into um, Ticonderoga, into a British garrison. And they were very successful when they got into this garrison. They were able to uh, subdue the centuries. 
And Ethan Allen was said to go to the commander's tent. And there he shouted to him, You must come out or I will kill all of your men. Within seconds, the commander of that British garrison was out with his pants in his hand. And he said to Ethan Allen, By what authority do you do this? And Ethan Allen said, In the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress. Now that's a little bit like what Jesus is doing here in the temple. He comes to the city of God for the glory of God. He comes to claim the temple court as the house of his father. He doesn't linger in the streets. He doesn't linger and bask in their adoration. Instead, he goes directly to the dwelling place of his father. And there he claims it for the glory of the father and the son through the Holy Spirit. And second, notice the cleansing. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now think about all of the things that God could have called the temple. He could have called it the pay station. He could have called it the duty station. He could have called it the judgment seat. But instead, he calls it the house of prayer. Can you think of a more intimate activity in all of life than honest, heartfelt prayer? You know, I've been in ministry a long time, and one of the uh, joys and frustrations of ministry is when couples come to get married. Often it's a joy, sometimes it's a frustration. Again, they're very much in love most of the time. Uh, They've got this great intimate relationship. Sometimes you see that plainly. Almost all of the time, I will challenge them with this. I'll say, do you ever pray together? And many of them have been walked with Christ for years, and they'll look away. Have you ever prayed together, not just for a meal or something like that, but have you ever just prayed together? And they'll say, um, nope. I'll say, I want you to do it before you meet with me again. And I'll say to them often, you know, you don't have to do paragraph prayers. You can do sentence prayers. You can do, just build on each other. And they'll start to shake. (laughs) And they'll say, okay. And I'll say, don't lie to me. And I think about often, why is it so difficult for them to conceive of that? And the answer is because humble, honest, heartfelt prayer is intimate. Isn't it interesting that God calls the temple the house of prayer, a place of tremendous intimacy, of self-disclosure, of laying down your own ego, of laying yourself bare, Think about a man who decides to cash a check. He walks into a bank, he writes out a check for $100, takes it to the teller and says, I'd like to have five twenties, please. She looks at the check, looks back at the man and says, do you have an account here? 
He said, no, ma'am, but I believe strongly in cash and checks. She says, well, you know, you may believe in it, but you have no account with us. And then the guy presses her, listen, I want you to cash my check. And she calls security. Why? Because believing in cashing checks isn't good enough. You have to have an account. The same is true in prayer. There are a lot of people who pray with no account. You see, for prayer to be real, there has to be an established relationship. It has to be a relationship of trust in which truly the Holy Spirit expresses himself through you to the one who knows you better than you know yourself. That's true prayer. That's true worship. And Jesus finds none of that at the temple at the beginning of the last Passover of his earthly ministry. He looks around. He sees people making a buck. He sees people out for themselves. He sees people going through the motions. You know, when I was a teenager, I discovered Psalm 37.4, and I thought, hey, this is it. This is my ticket. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. All I have to do is delight in Him, and He'll give me what I want. Now, that's how most people pray. Ask what you want, and He'll give it to you. And if He doesn't, you get mad. But years later, at the depth of despair, I came to understand the truth of that text. When I delight myself in Him, He gives me different desires. He makes my desires different, different than the ones I naturally have. And now, instead of trying to manipulate God, He begins to mold me, and He affects my desires by giving me different ones. There are only two places in the Gospels where Jesus is angry, at least that we read of. The way we know it is, he uses the imperative tense twice. And this is one of them. He says, you've made my father's house a den of robbers and thieves. Now, let me ask you, was it the sale of animals that caused him to be angry? Was it the exchange of money that caused him to be angry and call it a den of thieves? There's no indication of that. What made Jesus angry was their desire to take worship, the worship of God, and manipulate it for themselves. And Jesus won't stand for it. He turns the tables on them. He rips into the tables and he overturns them. But I would remind you of this. Notice Jesus is measured. Moses and Elijah would have torn down the place. But Jesus simply turns over the tables and shouts in the imperative. Then third, notice the chant. 
But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Now, Matthew is the only one of the gospel writers that tells us about the miracles. The lame, who Jesus heals. The blind, who he heals. Now, isn't that a perfect summation of what Jesus does in our life? He not only cleanses us of self-worship, but when he does, he opens our eyes and he strengthens our feet to walk in his way. The chief priests and the teachers of the law miss it. The children don't. They begin to pick up the chant that they had heard earlier, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the son of David. They begin to chant it. And this is a fulfillment of what Jesus says ten chapters earlier when he says, Thank you, Father, for you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding, and you revealed them to little children. Here's a perfect example of that. And then fourth, notice the challenge. And they said to him, Do you hear these, what these are saying? You know the problem with these guys? They can't hear what's being said. They can't hear what was said in the streets. They can't hear what's said in the outer court. They can't hear of Jesus' true identity. They are more interested in a praise that is self-directed. For them, there's no praise that's good praise except self-praise. During World War II, Winston Churchill was lauded as a great military leader. He was a magnificent wartime leader, but some wrote that he was a terrible spiritual leader. In fact, one wrote this, he has failed to provide this nation with strong spiritual guidance. You know what Churchill did? He wrote back, since the beginning, or since I became prime minister, I have appointed no less than six new bishops. What more do they want me to do? Now, you file that under deafness. You file that under going through the motions. They ask Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? Truth is, Jesus heard it. The children heard it. But the religious can't hear it. And then fifth and finally, notice the citation. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Now, if you check the footnote, you know that Jesus is quoting David. David says it this way, out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have prepared praise. Now, that is the English translation. And that's probably the best English translation there, there is. The NIV is worse. <laughs> But still, that doesn't get it. The Greek uses the middle voice. Now, you may remember the active voice always features action. But the middle voice always emphasizes the actor. So you know what the Greek literally says here? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have provided yourself with praise. You have provided yourself with praise. You see what Jesus is saying? 
These children are praising me. Not on their own, they're praising me because the Spirit of God has put the praise in their mouth. And that's exactly what Malachi says 400 years earlier. God is spirit, Jesus says earlier. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Meaning what? Meaning our praise, if it's true praise, is giving back to God not only what he deserves, but he, what he has already put into your heart and your mouth. You see, true faith is when the Holy Spirit cleanses you from self-centered religion. When He opens your eyes and He enables you to walk in His ways, you're not only delivered from going through the motions, you are enabled to give back to Him what He has already put into you, into your hearts, in your mouths. You know, it's a scripture that a lot of Christians know but they don't know. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he'll not depart from it. I've heard sermons on it. I've heard Bible studies on it. And I've heard people who are Christians talk about morals, talk about ethics, train a child in the ethics and the morals tell them right from wrong, and when they're old, even though they're teenagers or early 20s or whatever, they're going to come back. Now, you get that from the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, but you don't get it from this text. The Bible literally says here, train or raise a child on the way of his mouth, and when he is old, he'll not depart. The way of his mouth, what's that mean? The author of this proverb is saying, is just as the midwife creates a thirst in a baby for mother's milk by using salty olive oil, what God is saying is, just as she, the midwife, creates a thirst in the baby for the milk of the mother, so it is that the Holy Spirit creates a thirst in the children of God for the worship of God. And as you pour out your worship to Him in praise to the Lord, what He has already put in you, you express it. Your children will hear it. The adults will hear it. And they will desire to do the same thing. A few weeks ago, a man told me he'd been coming to Hebron for over 25 years. And about five years ago, when he heard Tim Williams preach, God said to him, you need some of that. And the Holy Spirit used that to transform his life. Train a child on the way of his mouth. Raise him on the way of his mouth. When he's old, he'll not depart from it. You see, that's what Jesus is after in Jerusalem. That's what he's after today in Penn Hills. He's after heartfelt praise that comes from the Holy Spirit's gifting. 
You know why? Because the God we serve not only controls the flight of every moth, He controls the propulsion of every bit of godly praise. The only question is this. Will you give him what he deserves? Will you give it to him? True, selfless worship. Or will you simply go through the motions? You know what determines it? What determines is, is, is this. If God has your attention. The temptation for every one of us is to go through the motions. I don't care how mature you are in Christ, that's the temptation. Jesus won't stand for it. Neither should we.